Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to welcome you here today. So good to see you here this weekend. We are in our third week in our series in the book of Exodus, and as I said, week one, we are flying over at significant altitude. Today, we're going to touch down a few times and uh, see our story wrapped up into the story of the people of God as it's laid out in the book of Exodus. Week one, we started where we all begin, enslaved to sin, and saw our relationship uh, with sin and really studied the nature of sin and how we're just sort of born into this uh, pitiful position being slaves to sin. Week two, last week, Bob was here talking about his, uh, God's choice of an unlikely man that he would use to bring the people of Israel out of slavery. We saw how their slavery in Egypt is just like our slavery to sin. And our story picks up again today, and we'll be covering the plagues of Egypt. We'll conclude our time by looking at the Passover, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, uh, Ryan told you we were a little shy on communion supplies. Our first group swooped in and grabbed all of them, and so we now have a restock. So at any point, even here in the beginning, if you want to make your way back there toward the end of our time together, me with you, we will celebrate together. You're going to need one of those communion packs. Don't feel bad if you just want to get up. And if you're at home, you can get your supplies ready um, to participate with us as well. I want to start this way. Uh, When I was in junior high, early high school, my older brother and I decided we wanted to start golfing. We thought that would be really fun to do. Uh, We were wrong. It costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of hard work to be good. Uh, But we tried anyway. And back in the day when we were getting started, there was a very popular professional golfer by the name of John Daly. John Daly was a hulk of a man, and uh, he was the kind of guy that just was grip it and rip it. Just take a big old swing, and he hit the ball a long way. So when we started golfing, we sort of emulated John Daly. Now, the tee boxes and the fairways ended up paying the price uh, because we just hit more grass than our golf balls, uh, but we gave it our best shot. By the time I got older uh, into college, I started working in a golf course, and I met some golf instructors. In fact, my father-in-law was a golf coach for a number of years, and I got some help along the way. But none of the helpers of, you know, my golf helpers ever told me to just adjust a few things. Invariably, they said the same thing. Um, You have to not do any of that. Just none of it. You will never be successful doing anything that you're doing. The only thing that you need to do that you have been doing is pick up a golf club. From there, everything changes. And so um, they began to help me. And basically what I had to do is not just learn how to swing a golf club. I had to unlearn how to swing a golf club. They sort of had to deconstruct everything that I had been building up and doing over time. And uh, so you you could have listened to those conversations between them and me and thought, oh, that's harsh. That's wow, those are terrible things to say. You're not good. Don't do any of that. Now do it this way. But what they were doing was actually merciful. It was actually very helpful because the things that they told me to do and the things that I was doing that they told me to stop doing actually enabled me to have a measure of success on the golf course. No, don't ask me how my game is today. We'll talk about that another time and probably not with you. Um, <laughs> In the section of Exodus we're going to be in today, we're going to watch a similar thing happen. We're going to watch God step into the nation of Egypt before all of the Egyptians and before all of the Israelites and basically just decimate bit by bit their system of false worship. 
He's basically going to say, what you're wanting, what you're trying to get, you will never get doing what you're doing. you got to start from ground zero, a brand new ground zero. It's fascinating to study the Egyptian religion because when you do this whole section in Exodus that we'll be covering today, takes on even more significance. We're going to be covering the plagues on Egypt. And if you've grown up around church, you've heard these stories. They're so fun. They're so interesting. If you've not grown up around church, you're in for a little wild ride. Um, There are a lot of plagues, the 10 plagues in Egypt. We're not covering all 10 today. If we were to try to do that, we may just spend three weeks together only on that. But again, this is where our plane picks up and we're at high altitude. We'll touch down on a few of them to see what God has for us today. But God is going to basically not just wrestle their false system of religion out of their hands. He's just going to destroy it. In the church world, we as pastors most of the time get to be the ones who are on the front lines watching God do significant things in people's lives. We're, we're in those rooms. We have those conversations and get to watch God work the impossible. But in this section of Scripture, it's not just the leaders who get to see all that's going on. It's everybody. It's out there for the world to see. So it's, it's amazing. you got a nation of Egypt who is pluralistic, meaning they worship many gods, 114 gods they had. And then you've got this nation ruled by uh, Pharaoh, That's terrible. I'm so distracted by that. You get Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who is leading this nation, who also fancies himself to be a god, not just a god, but the god who's sitting atop this system of false worship. And so what we're going to do is we're going to see ourselves in this story, and here's a couple of groups of people I want you to see yourself in. I want you to see yourself in the people of Israel. As we listen to what God is doing, I want you to see yourself there. I want you to see yourself in the nation of Egypt. I think we're going to look at what they thought and their responses, and we're going to see ourselves in there too. And then I want us to see if any of Pharaoh's responses show up in our life as well. I think we may see ourselves in one, two, or even all three of those groups. So God was going to do something amazing. Israel had lived in Egypt for over 400 years, and many of his own people had long since forgotten about him. But this section of Scripture reminds us that God had never forgotten about them. So really amazing, God appoints Moses. Uh, As we saw last week, Moses hesitates, doubting that God could use someone like him. But in the section we'll look at today, God begins to use this man to do some amazing things. And so in order to bring his people out of Egypt, uh, God would, uh, he would judge Egypt for for its treatment of his people But how he did it, how God does this is so fascinating because it reveals not just what's true about God, but what's true about all of the people involved as well. He didn't just, again, go about rescuing them, but systematically took down their system of false worship. All right, so in a display of power, God was basically setting himself up to show the watching world who he was. In fact, in Exodus chapter 5, you could start there if you have a Bible, your device, If you're uncomfortable with all that, as we all once were, that's fine. You can just see it right here. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? 
that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. It wasn't unheard of for Pharaoh to hear about someone wanting to go worship a god. That's what they did. Again, they had 114 of them. It was just beyond Pharaoh to consider that there was a god sitting in authority over him. And so he says, who's the Lord that I should obey him? And maybe this is a question you find yourself asking this morning. Maybe you stumbled through these doors this morning. You're not quite sure why you're here. You're wondering what place God has in your life, if any place at all. And maybe you're the one this morning saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? God is going to answer that question for us this morning. In fact, we actually see in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So we're going to talk today in the human story about a word that I don't think we use very much. Certainly not in the context we're looking at this morning. And that's the word redeem. Part of the human story is being redeemed. That means bought at a price. Here's the definition we can work with. Redeem means to release from bondage through payment of a price. In the culture we live in, we don't redeem significant things. We redeem a coupon. We redeem a voucher. There's something that we could have, and if we redeem our coupon or voucher, we get that thing released to us. But in the scope of the human story, we're talking about people who are being held captive, people in bondage, in need of rescue, in need of release. And the only way to be released from that captivity is through payment. So in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we witness God, the one true God, go about the work of redemption. And it's amazing. So again, not every plague, but we'll jump in. We'll tackle one, two, three, and six, and then ultimately we'll land on the 10th plague. So if you have your Bible, your device, buckle up. Here we go. First plague, chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. This is where God turns the Nile River in Egypt to blood. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. If you're kind of new or have a cursory understanding of the Bible, changing a river to blood seems a very, a very strange thing to do. Like, that's kind of random. There's a lot of things you could do. You know, lightning strikes and, you know, I don't know, have mountains fall down, something, an earthquake even. But the river to blood? Well, the Nile River Basin was the center of economic uh, power, economic control. It was the source of life, really the, the lifeblood, if you will, uh, of the nation of Egypt. As the Nile goes, so goes Egypt. And they had several gods um, dedicated to the Nile, but the primary god was a god named Happy. Here's a little image of what Happy looked like. And so Happy stood for 
Um, you sacrifice to happy to, to provide fullness of life. It, happy is the gateway to our American dream. It was the Egyptian dream. This is what happy did, all right? And so what God is doing is he's poking at the base impulse of every human being to want the good life, to want comfort, to want friends, right? Isn't that kind of what we want? We love holidays typically like Thanksgiving and Christmas because it's, it's good friends, it's rest, it's good food. This is kind of the picture. If you watch commercials these days, the image that they're trying to portray for if you drink this drink or eat this thing or go to this restaurant is, man, you're eating good in the neighborhood. Like, it's just so awesome. That's just what we want. And God is poking at this, saying, this God, happy, and your uh, pursuit of the good life here is a false pursuit. Happy, a false God. So the little idol of happy is standing up, and by turning the Nile to blood, God knocks that idol over. And it's a mercy that God is giving when he's doing this. The reality is the fullness of life, the good life that you and I really do desire is only found in God. And he knows that, but we don't always recognize that. So, so God, just like he did for the Egyptians, will painfully expose the idols in our lives. He will painfully reveal to us that these things cannot provide what we want, and whether for you it's food or drink or relationships or this discomfort, this sort of lifestyle you're trying to build, you're, it's going to come up short. It's going to come up short. And what happens is when these things are taken away from us, when we're no longer surrounded by people who love us and have the good food and the comfort and all that, we get angry at God as though he's doing something to us. But what God is only doing is revealing to us the true nature of things. That the good life, the comfort, fulfillment that we seek is not found in things. It's found in him. And so with one plague, God said, yeah, this source of life and abundance here around the Nile, it, it can't hold water, right? It's not going to do it for you. And I want us to wrestle with the fact this morning that it's God's mercy to reveal to us, sometimes in painful ways, that what we've been looking to for satisfaction, fulfillment, and fullness of life, when it's not him, uh, it's a false god. The Egyptians had it. We have it as well. Pharaoh ultimately is unmoved by this. He finds ways around it by digging ditches and trenches along the Nile and just using dirty water. So he sat with a hardened heart for seven days and his nation suffered. Plague number two, chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up upon you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with a staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go. 
and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Jump to verse 12. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Pharaoh cried out, or Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses and in the courtyards and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Frogs, again, kind of random, kind of weird, slimy, green, all over the place. Uh, this is represented by their god, Heket. All right, here's an image of what Heket looked like, uh, the head of a frog here. Uh, Heket was the god of fruitfulness or fertility. All right, you're having a lot of kids. You're multiplying things. I'm multiplying land. I'm multiplying houses. I'm multiplying finances. I'm just getting more and more and acquiring and spreading myself out here. And when I needed that or a little bit more of that, I cried out to Heket. And Heket would provide it. And so God, in a really gross way, is showing the people, um, you, you, think, you think multiplying, you think fruitfulness, you think, all the, you think this is going to do it for you? Um, let me show you what I can do to your God, Heket. Um, <laughs> unbelievable. God said, you can be as fruitful as you can possibly be, and you can build it all up. In fact, I'll give you an abundance of fruitfulness. Look at all the little representations of Heket I'm going to give you. They're everywhere. And you can spread out and multiply all your stuff and your family. And ultimately, all that happens to it is it ends up in a pile and it stinks. God is saying, you can try to multiply all the stuff you want, your resources and your family and your houses and your land, and get as much as you possibly can, and it ends up in a pile and it stinks, and someone's got to take care of it one day. Just knocked that idol right over. See, God knows that only a life surrendered to him will generate true fruitfulness in our lives. And I want us to see something, because I think, I think if we're careful, we'll see ourselves right here in Pharaoh. Look again at verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Uh, one of the things I do get a front row seat to is this very thing happening in this very place. Here's how it goes. Life is going fine. Life's going just fine. Suddenly, the things I thought I had control over, my family, my finances, my health, my job, my direction, my kids, something goes drastically wrong. What do I do? Cry out to the Lord. I show up at church. I fill a seat. I'm here for a good while. I'm going to get the help I need. I'm going to grab some people. We're going to link arms. We're going to lock arms. We're going to do this together. Oh, what a wonderful place. And it is. It really is. And the moment I'm back up on my feet, and the moment everything's good again, see ya. I'm good. The moment relief comes, you and I, we are so quick. We are so quick to just walk away from God. In fact, I spoke to a man after first service, and he said, when the plane is up in the air, no one prays. When the plane is going down, everyone prays, right? Don't we, do, don't we just do that? What's happening? What's happening is God is knocking our idols down, saying they're not going to do it for you. It's not going to help 
I wonder, wonder if our story's wrapped up in there a little bit. Now shift gears. Let's go to the third plague. This one is gnats. Look at chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. God was not just knocking down um, the God of the Nile, the God of fertility, the good life. He was also attacking the God named Set. This is a goddess of the desert. She provided comfort and peace for the soul. Maybe an oasis in the desert of this is this kind of idea. What God is doing here is letting them know that no amount of wealth or achievement or affluence can bring comfort to your soul. You can hit your financial mile markers. You can get your retirement built up. You can finally get that cottage, that lake house, that home, that beach house, that yurt, whatever your thing is. And it's not going to do it for you. No amount of technology, nothing that we have here on the earth can alleviate the trouble that we feel in our souls. Nothing. You can have the latest tech. You can have the latest medicine. And we are still more unsettled and anxious than we have ever been. No amount of vacation, vaccination, or relaxation will do it for us. I mean, you could think of Tom Brady. We know the name Tom Brady, right? Have we heard it enough? I've heard it enough. I'm not a Patriots fan. I'm not a Buccaneers fan. But he is recorded and interviewed, and he paints this picture of having won a Super Bowl, sitting down on his hotel bed, looking at his Super Bowl ring, saying, is, is this it? This is what I do? This is what I've given my life to? This is my ident- This right here? Tom Brady, so accomplished, so successful, the man is worth an estimated $270 million. As if that weren't enough, he's married to a supermodel who's actually out-earning him worth an approximate $400 million. Never has to worry, can I afford that? Ever. What am I going to eat? I don't know, but someone's going to prepare it for me, probably. Where am I going to go? I don't know, but someone's going to drive me there, probably, if I want them to. What does he have to worry about? And how can he sit on his hotel bed, having all that he has, having done all that he's done, and say, is it? How does that happen? How is that possible? It's because the comfort you long for can only be satisfied in a relationship with God. That's why. And that's how. And I think, I, listen, I've been around church a long time. That seems like a disappointing answer. No, 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 no. It's, no, it's God. It just is. It just is. Let's, let's hit the next plague, the sixth plague. And this would be the last one in this little pocket that we're going to cover before we hit the last one. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. This one is boils. Boil. I, I'm not going to ask you. I don't even want to know who has experience with boils, and I'm not going to tell you if I have either. But I, I understand. It's miserable. 
pressure, heat, pain, sensitivity, and then the rest. Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace. Have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So the deity here, the false god, a couple of them, Sekhmet is one and Sunu is the other. These are the primary gods over health, over disease. When you wanted to be healthy and you were chasing down the healthy lifestyle, you were reaching out to these gods and they were going to do it for you. So here God is attacking the two gods dedicated to health. Does God do this today? Hmm, I don't know. Let's investigate the last 18, 14, 18 months. Might God just be knocking down the idol of health? And health isn't unimportant. It is important. Kristen and I have spent the last several years of our lives working, building slowly to become more and more healthy. It's something that, it's, that is important to take care of the, uh, the body that God has given us. But it is not ultimate. And you cannot hang on to it. Sometimes it's just taken from you. Sometimes in subtle ways where, you know, maybe I went to the trampoline park with the junior hires on Friday and maybe I'm a little sore and maybe I tired out more quickly than I thought. Probably not, but maybe. (laughs) But sometimes we so idolize health, we so idolize protection, we shut out family and friends and, and make terrible, hurtful choices in the name of health. We build up walls. We think, you know, we can find it. And whether you think it's modern medicine or thieves oil on the bottom of your feet or uh, the oils or whatever you use, we do not have ultimate control over our health. We just don't. Cancer does not care how much spinach you eat. Dementia does not care how much Sudoku you do. And a heart attack does not care how much exercise you're involved in. God is revealing to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to you and me exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Your days are numbered, and you don't set that number. God does. And so here's what God has done through just these four plagues, and there are ten. He has destroyed their false source of life, happiness, fruitfulness, success, and he has exposed the fragility of mankind. This is what was taking place in Egypt, and this is exactly what God, in his mercy, will do for you and for me. He will just knock down the idols. And so here's the first truth that we need to wrestle with when it comes to the human story. God will destroy every idol to show me he alone is God. God is so good and so kind And so merciful, he will invade your life and he will reveal to you that where you've been putting your weight, where you've been putting your hope, where you've been finding comfort, cannot deliver what you most need. Only he can. We go back to Exodus 6, 6 and 7, and we see God saying, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord I will bring you out from underneath the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. 
I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. What you and I are so desperately seeking that causes us to look into people and things and experiences to provide for us will not do it. God alone will. So you finally got the job. Good job. Way to go. It's not going to satisfy your soul. You found the one, your soulmate. Oh, good for you. Not going to satisfy your soul. You finally had kids. Yes, grandkids. Not going to satisfy your soul. You inherited the land. You inherited the wealth. Wow, not going to satisfy your soul. You finally made your goal weight. Your pants are fitting differently. Good job. Not going to satisfy your soul. Good food. Good drink. Lots of friends, wonderful, not going to satisfy your soul. It cannot be found. It cannot be found in anything other than God. And understand that this just wasn't for the Egyptians. The Israelites had spent 430 years in this land. They had become convinced, too, that life, fulfillment, satisfaction, could be found outside of God. I married my dream girl. I did. But I cannot put my hope in her. She will let me down. She actually married her dream man. Don't like to brag, but I hear it all the time. And I let her down. I, I'm not. I can't do for her what God alone can do. I just can't. I've got four awesome kids. And they can't be my savior. They can't satisfy. And time and time again, I have watched God destroy every idol out there. He's done it for me in very painful and clear ways. And I've watched him do it to my friends, people in our church, and it is an act of mercy, not an act of judgment. He's trying to win you back. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. Therefore God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day this will happen. Every person will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But you and I have the opportunity to do that right now and not wait for God to just knock the pedestal out from under our feet or to tip our idols over. We can just do that now and declare him Lord because one day every idol in your life and in my life will be exposed for what it is. And we will acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. God is committed to answering that question that Pharaoh asked in the beginning, maybe the one that you're asking, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In Exodus 12, 12, God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Who, who? You're asking who? Oh, it's me. It's me. So God is warring for the hearts of his people in Israel. He is warring for your and my heart today. He will not have second place. And not because he's power hungry or ego tripping. It's because he alone is worthy of worship, and he knows that. 
And so God desires to invade our lives and expose our idols, but then bring us out of slavery. And here's the second truth in the human story, to bring us out of slavery and into worship. That's what God is doing, bringing you out so that you see him alone as supreme, the one who can satisfy the longings of your soul. He does this because you and I were made to worship. We were. We are always worshiping someone or something. In fact, typically, the things that we worry most about are probably the things that we are worshiping. So the same thing he's doing in this ancient story, he's doing in your life and mine. And the question is, how much is it going to take before you bow the knee and say, okay, okay. You alone are God. You've got my life. For Pharaoh, the first nine plagues didn't do it for him. Tragically, he hardened his heart. And so we come to the 10th plague, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Jump to verse 4. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. Sin was being punished. It was going to happen. And sin is no respecter of persons. From the throne room to the slave house, sin was going to be judged. But God, in his great mercy and his grace, was going to provide a way of escape for this punishment. This was not just on Egypt. This was on Israel as well. Judgment was coming for the sin of the people, and rescue would be provided. He instructed Moses to tell people that they were to take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and they were to cook it and eat it together that night for dinner. But they were to take the blood from that lamb when they killed it and paint its blood on the doorposts of their house. Verse 11, chapter 12. This is how you are to eat that meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You are to celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. God was going to redeem his people. And it was going to require a blood sacrifice. It was either going to be the blood of a child or the blood of a lamb. One or the other. Payment needed to be made. And please understand, God is not paying off Pharaoh. He's not paying off Egypt. No, God was bringing the judgment and the lamb would be a payment to cover the house. The people who believed what God said and did what he said. But as we said in week one, we are the Israelites in bondage. We need to be redeemed and purchased and God also provided a lamb for me and you. Not a little one as a pet, 
but the Lamb, a man named Jesus Christ, who, who spilled his blood for you and for me. And if we place our faith in his shed blood, in his death, the payment that he made to deliver us from the coming judgment of God, we too would be redeemed the way the Israelites were. All of what took place with the lambs being sacrificed and the blood on the doorpost was a foreshadowing, a picture of what Jesus offers to you and me. This is our story. And so Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said something none of his disciples expected him to say. But in order to appreciate the unexpected, we need to understand what was expected. Before Jesus shed his blood, he had what was called the Last Supper with his disciples, his closest followers. It was not an ordinary meal. It was a meal where they remembered this event in Egypt where God redeemed the Israelites out of slavery and meaningless death. And though the Egyptians were the oppressors, they worshipped idols, the Israelites were not guiltless. We read elsewhere in Scripture that they themselves worshipped idols. So being an Israelite or a Hebrew would not save them. They, too, needed to be covered by the blood. And about midnight, the destroyer came and brought judgment on every house in Egypt, both Jew and Egyptian, but those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb were delivered from the judgment of God. Generations would celebrate the Passover meal, remembering what the Lord brought in Egypt. He would, they would sacrifice a lamb, remembering how its blood provided a distinction and a covering from the destroyer. I want you to get this ready. There's uh, two little tabs here. The first little light one is a clear one. It exposes the little cracker, the little wafer there. Don't open the thick one yet. That's the juice. We'll get there in a, in a minute. Um, let me just remind you, this doesn't do anything for you. Um, we're going to eat it together here and drink together here in a minute. This is a remembrance and a celebration of what Jesus has done for us. It doesn't earn you any favor or grace. We just were commanded to do it, to help us remember what we've been given. And so on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the disciples celebrated the Passover meal. When Jesus stood up, they expected to hear this. This is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. Let all who, are, uh, who need come and celebrate the Passover with us. But instead, Jesus stood up and said this. This is my body which is given for you. Jesus was saying, this is no longer the bread of the affliction of our people in Egypt. This is the bread of my affliction. And when you eat it, you remember that I laid down my life for you. I am the Passover lamb, Jesus was saying, and my body will suffer the ultimate affliction. Jesus was even confirmed as being the lamb of God when John saw him in John 1, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so whether you're here and you're from the church background or not, you've got nothing to bring to the table. Everyone begins under God's judgment and only the blood of Jesus can rescue you. If you're here today and you've placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope and by faith put your life in his hands, then in a minute we're going to eat together. But first... The Bible tells us we need, before we eat together, to examine ourselves. 
going to give you a moment of quietness here. Ask God to reveal the sin in your heart where you're not in harmony with him. When he does, confess that to him, asking his forgiveness. And then in a moment, we'll lead together. So we remember and we celebrate the goodness of God and his forgiveness of our sins through Jesus' shed blood and broken body. Let's eat together. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The blood of the lamb. Let's drink and remember his shed blood for us together. And so we ask, if this is what Jesus has done for us, God in his grace has given us a lamb to pay the price for our sin, so we can avoid the judgment of God, why wouldn't we worship? Why wouldn't we? I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to pray, and uh, and we're going to worship together and express our gratitude for God offering payment himself through his son so that you and I would not have to pay the price for our sin. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good. Our sin demanded the payment of a price and we were not fit to pay it. Only Jesus alone could pay that price for our, for our sins. You were right in bringing judgment. In fact, the psalmist says, you are proved right when you speak and you are justified when you judge because you've done nothing You've done nothing wrong, but we have violated your commands. We've violated your laws, and we deserve your judgment. We admit that today, but because you have rescued us by redeeming us, sending Jesus, who paid the price that our sins demanded that we pay, we praise you. We worship you. We love you. Would you help our hearts to just swell with love and devotion and affection for you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.